It's good to be together. We're back on the issue of the priesthood of every believer. Very, very important doctrine. Very substantial. And certainly one of the key ideas of Reformation theology is the priesthood of every believer. As you've probably already seen and will continue to see, this doctrine is solidly grounded in Scripture. It cannot be doubted that the New Testament teaches the priesthood of every believer. Let me read the passage that most clearly teaches it. We find it 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the New Testament, making us priests to you, giving us access to your throne of grace. May we understand what you've said and live it and apply it as we go through life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm showing you from the writings of Martin Luther and more importantly from Scripture that this doctrine is true. And it was taught clearly at the time of the Reformation. And I think it's not emphasized enough lately. People are losing touch with the foundations of the faith and are listening to many voices that are not understanding their responsibility as priests to God. Now, I remember saying two weeks ago, We were on slide nine. Does anybody remember if we completed this one? I know we were on it. All right. Thank you. No, we did not. So we're looking at the functions of priests and proving that every one of them is the domain of every Christian. And that's why this is so important. And now we're talking about the practice that was prevalent at the time of the Reformation and is still Roman Catholic doctrine to this day that priests are able to consecrate the Lord's Supper and magically turn the bread and wine into something that they're not. That only priests can do this. I'm going to make two claims. Number one, transubstantiation is a false doctrine not taught in Scripture. Number two, in order to pray over and present communion or the Lord's Supper to Christians, you need to be nothing more than a Christian. You don't have to be some special priesthood beyond the priesthood of every believer. Last 
week or two weeks ago, I said something that I got wrong. I used the phrase mumbo jumbo. That's false. That's not what Rome sounds like. It's hocus pocus. Thank you, everyone who corrected me. Hocus pocus. Now, thank you, Dan, for last week sharing with us what you did. This is in the front row center nowadays in America because the Pope's coming. And therefore, this again is taking on new urgency. We desperately need to understand the doctrine of the priesthood of every believer. And it's so comforting to us when we see its implications. Now, during the Reformation, here on this slide nine, Luther says that every believer can participate in the Lord's Supper without a special priesthood doing something first. And so quoting Martin Luther, I say, unmoved, or he says, excuse me, unmoved by their senselessness, senselessness, we hold that this function too, like the priesthood, belongs to all. And this we assert not on our own authority, but that of Christ, who at the Last Supper said, do this in remembrance of me. Luke 22, 19, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. This is the word by means of which the shorn papists, that would be the Roman priesthood, claim they can make priests and give them the authority to consecrate. But Christ spoke this word to all those then present and to those who in the future would be at the table to eat this bread and drink this cup. So it follows that what is given here is given to all. Now, this is very important. And part of the reason it's important is the idea of means of grace. And I intend to write on this. I'm gathering verses and gathering my thoughts and trying to put them in order in my mind so I can sit down and write. But I want to write again about how God sanctifies us using his ordained means. I talked to a believer who expressed frustration with me over a situation in which one had to first swear total allegiance to a confession from church history before they're allowed to at the Lord's table. Okay? And a person also, besides swearing allegiance to something beyond Scripture, they also have to prove that they're really a good Christian. Now, this error has crept itself into a lot of places. Now, in this case, it was a Reformed church doing this. And so they are, by calling themselves Reformed and then proceeding in a way that's more in keeping with Rome than with the gospel, are proving they're not really Reformed. Why would a creed from church history be more binding than scripture? And why would a creed from church history be non-reformable? Isn't that what the Pope said? 
We quoted Luther. This cannot be reformed. You have to obey what the Pope says. And if it's true that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, which I believe that it is, because it involves a command, do this, it's in the imperative, it involves a promise. Jesus said, I will not drink this cup with you until I drink it anew in the Father's kingdom. There's a promise that Christ will return and that we'll have table fellowship with Jesus Christ and that together we'll share with the Lord like the apostles did at the Last Supper and it's accessible. That is, this isn't something that you have to earn the right to by being a higher order Christian. Do you understand that? Because the result of grace is that we're more like Christ. Means of grace are things that are accessible to all so that we can become more like Christ. And if some church officer says, I determine that you're not a good enough Christian, so we'll cut you off from the means, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Because how are Christians going to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord if they're cut off from the means ordained by God that they could? And furthermore, as we will see as we go forward here, that it is part of the priesthood of every believer that we judge doctrine. And we'll be able to prove that from Scripture very clearly. So why is it that some people say you are required by church authorities to believe and obey a certain creed, and you're not allowed to judge that creed? This is just going back to Rome. The only difference is the creed is somebody else's besides Rome's. I would never allow that to happen to me. And I would rebuke that pastor and call him a hypocrite. Because who are you to say that Christians can't judge doctrine when we're commanded to do so by Christ? So there's a lot out there called reform that I will debate and refute and refuse to listen to. And I don't care how many friends I lose. I've already lost some. They're commanding me to obey their creed and not judge it. Might as well go to Rome. The mic's over here. Yeah. And by the way, baptism and the Lord's Supper were shared by all as soon as people became Christians in the early church, yes. Um, Just back to the point about cutting people off from the means of grace. Can you um, explain then how the Matthew 18 process, in which there is a point where they are cut off from the means of grace, works with this? That's on one of our slides. Okay. And, And that's part of our function as the priesthood of every believer. Okay. If someone rebels against the gospel and goes off into error and sin, there is such a thing as church discipline. But the goal of it is to bring the person back. But that's coming up. That's another one of Luther's points that he takes out of Matthew 18. But 
here's the here's the issue. We can't look at someone who comes into the fellowship and confesses Christ and is submitted to the lordship of Christ and say you can't participate in the Lord's Supper until you swear allegiance to a church creed. Does anybody besides me see what's wrong with that? It's absurd. And people that we know and admire teach this. And shame on them. Repent. And I call Christians to stand up to these false leaders and rebuke them. And say, as a priest to God, it's my duty to judge your creed, not blindly submit to it before I even read it. I'm willing to be corrected. Well, let's go on. You'll see. Let's go to the slide 10. Binding and loosing here again is the same issue we're talking about. Let me first of all tell you what binding and loosing is. In rabbinic terminology, which Jesus used in Matthew 16 and elsewhere, in Matthew 18, rabbis would determine what's lawful and what is not, what's forbidden and what's permitted. So they would have a debate on the issue of law and say, oh, Rabbi uh, Hillel, is it lawful for me to travel so many, whatever, cubits or whatever they, on Shabbat? Well, so then they'd have their enclave and they would debate it and they'd come up with a legal opinion. Well, you can go this far, not that far. And this goes on to this very day. The the one synagogue that we bought a synagogue at one time and turned it into a church and the, the rabbi was not allowed to drive his car on Shabbat, but everybody else was. Well, see, it's just legal opinions that come up and are done. So binding and loosing doesn't mean binding Satan and demons. It means determining what is or is not in accordance with the teaching of Christ. And what are the terms of entrance? The keys of the kingdom are the terms of entrance through the gospel into the eternal kingdom. And according to the New Testament, and I think Luther's right to point this out, every Christian has use of the keys. And this is just so simple as to believe that every Christian is an evangelist. Every Christian can tell people, whoever they may be, how it is that you can find forgiveness of sins, how it is that you have eternal life. What did Christ say are the terms of entering into his kingdom? And we say it's through the gospel, right? How advanced do you have to be to share the gospel with somebody? You can do so right away. In fact, new Christians are often amazing evangelists. I was uh, converted, uh, I, I believe, on a Saturday 
I had to go back at Google and find out July 18, 1971. I think it was a Saturday. Well, the word got out that I had come to Christ because I was such a notorious enemy of the gospel. And this evangelist asked me to come down to a camp meeting in Storm Lake, Iowa, and share what happened to me. I'd only been a Christian for two days. And he said, well, share your testimony. I said, I'd never heard of a testimony. Tell me what it is. Well, you tell what God did for you. I said, well, I can do that. And so I shared about Christ having saved me in front of hundreds of kids at this camp two days after being a Christian. If you look in Acts chapter 9, you'll see that Paul... We know that he eventually spent the three years in Arabia and so on. But before that, he went around saying Jesus is the Christ. You can't stop a new Christian from telling people that. Because you change. You light up with the joy of the Lord. And you have to tell people. Okay. So there's the exercise of the keys. Yes. Just a quick note on binding and loosening. Can you explain? first part of this passage above the red but this office of the keys belongs to all of us who are Christians yeah if you look in Matthew it talks about the keys of the kingdom and Rome says that they belong to Peter is that not correct that Peter was given the keys remember on this rock alright and therefore by their idea the papacy continues to hold the keys as it goes forward. But I'm saying that the terms of entrance into the kingdom are not the domain of Peter alone, because we know many other people preach the gospel, and that we enter by faith through grace into the eternal kingdom. Dan, do you have anything to share about that? Yeah, could you hand it? Well, go ahead. Well, Peter. Just as it carries forward, I'm trying to understand, but they do use them to regulate the money pouches of the earth. So that's where you mean they've usurped the gospel yes. and taken over the administration. They can say you can't enter, or you, you have some horrible sin, and it's going to cost you a lot of money. That's what he means to regulate the money purse. Indulgences. That's what the 95 Theses were about. Taking money from people so they can get rid of their sin. And we see TV evangelists absconding with money under the idea you're buying a miracle. Dan. Well, I just like we shared last week uh, that the seal of the papacy and the, the flag you know, has the two keys on there, and and that's just representative of him having the power, or whoever holds the papacy position at the time has the power to you know to bind and loose, and it's it's an exclusive Catholic, um, it's exclusively Catholic that they have this power to do that, and that's why it's it's not the authority in the Catholic system isn't isn't scripture. It's it's it ends up being the church, the Roman Catholic Church right. is where the power lies, and that's what's so so dangerous about the papacy in general, and and having this 
this particular pope at this particular time coming to probably lecture us what we need to do, you know, to further the kingdom. You know, his yeah. kingdom is what it is. So can you see why the priesthood of every believer is such a revolutionary idea? It's amazing. Now, go ahead, uh, Brian. It's even gone so far with the Pope that about a week and a half ago, he said that being a Jubilee year, he's going to forgive women who have had abortions. It's, it's, it's on him to determine who's forgiven and who's not for what. Yes. Now, let me uh, comment on this Jubilee year and the forgiveness of sins, if you do not mind. You're so kind, you let me comment on a lot of things. I've seen teachers, besides the Pope, talking about his Jubilee. And some say the stock market's going to crash or this is going to happen. Somebody turn to Luke 4.18. Maybe, Eric, we haven't heard from you. Could you turn to Luke 4.18? And let's have a little discussion about what the year of Jubilee is, just so you're not deceived either by the Pope or these other false teachers. Okay? The times and the seasons that these people would like to promote is not a biblical idea. Luke 4.18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And he goes on to say to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Yeah, the year of the Lord's favor. Yeah, and how egregious is it? You know, here we have not only a false binding by a false prophet, the Pope, but it's bringing us back to a covenant that we don't belong to. The year of Jubilee was for the Jews, and they had to give back land. So if we're going to go back to the year of Jubilee and say that that's binding in that sense, then we have to give land back, and we have no way of doing loans. We can't have property um, our whole nation is in upheaval because of it, when in fact it's fulfilled in Christ. And as you're mentioning here, Bob, in the text, what it's really ultimately about is the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, release from sins. Amen. Okay, Jesus, dear beloved Christians, please hear me. Jesus declared release, aphiomi, aphasis, release of sins. Jesus declared the year of God's favor, which is a reference to the year of Jubilee, which the Jews had never practiced, ever. Okay? Jesus comes on the scene of history and declares that in him is forgiveness of sins and release to captives and the favorable year of the Lord. And that since Jesus announced that in the synagogue in Nazareth over 2,000 years ago, that whole time up until now, we've been in a year of Jubilee. And that any time after Jesus announced that, people who believe what he said and come to Jesus are released. So the Jubilee is in Christ? Yes. Jesus can't lie. He's God. He said it is. So we got a false prophet besides the Pope running around saying it's going to be the year of Jubilee. 
Well, what happened in the last 2,000 years? Did Jesus lie to us? Can we not trust Jesus? Is he a bad source for doctrine? You choose. Are you going to believe Jesus or are you going to believe these other guys? As far as the Pope saying, well, now if you had an abortion, you can be forgiven. What are the terms of forgiveness? That you come to Christ, repent, and believe the gospel. Jesus declared release from sins. It's always open. He said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. My yoke is light and my burden is easy. The yoke was the yoke of the law. They piled up heavy burdens and laid it on men's shoulders. But Jesus said that in him we have Sabbath rest. Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. Jubilee is fulfilled in Christ. The release of sins is fulfilled in Christ. My dear friends, come to Christ. It's all forgiven. Binding and loosing is determined by the teachings of the new covenant. And what Jesus bound is bound. What he loosed is loosed. So you have the keys, the terms of entrance, and binding and loosing, the terms of living. And the binding and loosing that's given to us as Christians under the priesthood of every believer is to do church discipline, to know what God allows and what he doesn't allow, and to know what is or isn't sin. And this is for all of us as the priesthood of every believer. Now, let me quote Luther. I hope you see that I'm grounding all of this in Scripture, but I do believe Luther had it right. And I wish we understood the real significance of the Reformation. Luther, they never employ the keys to open or close heaven to consciences, but they do use them to regulate the money pouches of all the earth. Who's the guy? Tickle? Who's the guy? The the coins in the coffer? Tetzel? The coins in the coffer ring. The souls from purgatory spring. Ring, ring, spring, spring, ring, ring. Luther sees that. No. You can't take money to get rid of sin. Regulate the money pouches of all the earth. It worked. Built St. Peter's Cathedral. But he said, but this office of the keys belongs to all of us who are Christians. As I have so often proved and shown in my book, says Luther against the Pope, for the word of Christ in Matthew 18, 15, is addressed not only to the apostles, but certainly to all the brethren. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So we declare what, by Christ's teaching, which is his and that of his apostles, what is and isn't sin, and what's allowed and what's not allowed, and the keys are the terms of entrance. I felt this was so important that when we started Critical Issues Commentary in April of 1992, our Article 1 
was, or issue one was, binding and loosing. Because I had talked to so many pastors who thought that we bind Satan. And they didn't even understand what the issues are. Let's go to some more on binding and loosing. Continuing with Luther here. As we have declared already, the ministry of the word belongs to all. To bind and loose clearly is nothing else than to proclaim and apply the gospel. Hallelujah. There it is. Proclaim and apply the gospel. For what is to loose, says Luther, if not to announce the forgiveness of sins before God? Well, Jesus did in the first century. The scriptures were written for us in the first century, the New Testament ones. I think this Pope Francis showed up too late. Now he's going to do it. No, it's too late. Luther says, what is it to bind except to withdraw the gospel and to declare the retention of sins? Whether they want to or not, they must concede that the keys are an exercise of the ministry of the word and belong to all Christians. And why was this such a horrible thing in the 16th century? Luther also said it's clear enough that among the papists, the knowledge of Christ, faith, and the gospel are altogether unknown and at present even damned. Did you hear Dan last week uh, quoting MacArthur? If anybody says, what did they say? If anybody says that you're justified by faith alone, let him be damned. Rome damns the gospel itself. Luther's absolutely right. It hasn't changed. Nobody ever negated Trent. They never had a council saying, no, Trent was wrong. We don't agree with it. So therefore, we have false binding and loosing. Let's talk about sacrifices. This is really interesting. If you think about the Old Testament, priests sacrifice. So what does that have to do with us? How do we offer sacrifices? Because Christ paid the sacrifice for sins once for all, right? Well, Luther knows his Bible. There are some sacrifices that we do. Not the sacrifice for sin, but the fruit of the lips, the sacrifice of praise. Hallelujah. Let's see the scripture. Let me quote Luther, and then we'll look at the Bible that show that what he says is accurate. Luther says, we call as witness the writings of the New Testament, to which we appeal in opposing Satan, and assert that in the New Testament, there is no sacrifice except the one which is common to all, namely the one described in Romans 12.1, where Paul teaches us to present our bodies as a sacrifice. Jesus Christ sacrificed his body for us on the cross. In this sacrifice, he includes the offering of praise and thanksgiving. Peter likewise commands in 1 Peter 2.5, that we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, that is ourselves, 
not gold or animals. See, I hope we can understand how important this is, what a blessed privilege it is. My friends, we go and we sing praises to God. We thank him for the gospel. We thank him for grace. We thank him for the forgiveness of sins. And we offer up ourselves as living sacrifices, acceptable to God. Why would God want me? I'm a sinner. Saved by grace. I'm not perfected yet. But he accepts our sacrifice of praise on account of his son, Jesus Christ. His blood cleanses our sins. We have access to the throne of grace. I'll talk about that in a moment. And it's pretty obvious from scripture that this is the domain of every one of us as the priesthood of every believer to offer up sacrifices, not animals whose blood is pouring out on the altar as they did in the Old Testament because Christ did that once for all according to Hebrews, but the sacrifice of praise. Hallelujah. Let's look up some scriptures. Where's the mic at this point? Okay. Tom, do you want to read Romans 12, 1 that we referenced? Noel, can you do one? 1 Peter 2, 5. And then, Brian, you can do Hebrews 13, 15. I want to prove to you from scripture that every one of us who believes in Christ can offer up sacrifices to God that are acceptable. We don't need a priest to do it. Do you know why Luther's saying this? It destroys the whole idea of the Mass. Don't need it. You don't need the Mass. It's a false sacrifice. Christ paid the penalty once for all, and our sacrifice is a sacrifice of praise. Tom, Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Who did he urge? The brethren, all Christians. Do you know how revolutionary this is? We take it for granted, perhaps, or maybe we don't even think about it. But in Luther's day, Christians weren't allowed to do that. If they were under Rome, the sacrifice is offered through the Mass. It's your job to give money. Yes. No. 1 Peter 2.5. 1 Peter 2.5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Hallelujah. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Notice that when we read these verses, we see the term acceptable. Why? Because the fear would be God's going to reject it. Okay, God won't accept my sacrifice. He'll look at me and say, you're not very good. I don't think your sacrifice is any good. But if we're in Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. And the sacrifice that we offer, we are told on the authority of Scripture, is acceptable to God. Is that something to be thankful for? 
Amen. Amen. Over here, and then we'll have another verse. Oh, two of them. Okay. Well, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, it, it just occurred to me that the gospel is a weapon of mass destruction. Yeah. <laughs> it destroys the mass. Yeah, there. Chalk one up for Dana. I hadn't thought of that. That's a good one. Somebody else have a question? Go ahead. No, go ahead and read uh, oh. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Uh, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to His name. There it is. And you'll also notice that it mentions uh, giving praise to His name in one Peter two and verse nine. So. Um, do you think it's kind of rare that we hear teaching about the priesthood of every believer? I think it's important that we do. We don't hear enough about this. Let me quote what Luther said about the sacrifice as defined by Rome. Quote, this isn't on a slide here. Therefore, that which they boast of as a singular sacrifice is indeed a singular sacrifice of a singular priesthood, says Luther, but of a kind in which no Christian could or should in any way wish to be a participant. He should, on the contrary, denounce such participation as idolatry and a most blasphemous abuse and pray to be as far removed as possible from a part in it, however ancient and universal they allege it to be. Wow. Get away. Run. Run for your life. I don't care how long this is going on. It's false. Okay, can I ask? Yes. For those of us who have a lot of Catholic family, what do we do about weddings and funerals and things that involve family celebrations and it includes the Mass? Um, Many times, like going to work, you're forced to be in the world and not of it. And I think uh, most of us would go to weddings and funerals and they have this blasphemous thing going on. I've seen that. I've done it. I haven't done it, but I've been there. They come around with their blasphemous sacrifice. I say, no. I'm here as an observer. And as soon as the incense starts burning, my asthma drives me out of there anyhow. You know, the whole thing is blasphemous. Luther isn't just some sort of a scandal scoundrel trying to make a scandal. He's telling you the truth. It's too bad now we have evangelicals and Catholics together. I wrote an article rebuking an article in Christianity Today. It was talking about emergent mysticism, 
spiritual formation, and so on. And I talked about the road back to Rome, praising it and saying that we have the guidance of nuns and po- nuns and priests helping us on the way. Chris Armstrong, a local guy here, wrote the article. So I wrote an article rebuking that whole thing. It's on CICministry.org. And I started getting calls and emails because I warned that if they do this, they'll go back to Rome. One guy I was in seminary with called me and said, remember me? I was in seminary with you. Yeah, I remember you. Well, you're right. It is the road back to Rome. And I did go back to Rome, and I like it. I don't want the gospel. I want Rome. I wanted the smells and the bells, the vaulted ceiling, all of these experiences, and the idea of the ancient. Okay, remember the ancient that they're going to go back to? Luther says, run away from it, no matter how ancient it is. Come to Christ. You know, the true gospel doesn't require a cathedral. It doesn't require gold and silver. It doesn't require a professional priesthood. It doesn't require sacrifices other than the sacrifice of praise. It's very simple. And God designed the gospel so that it could go anywhere in the world. God designed Christian worship so that we could have it wherever we are. Two or three more, two or three of you gather in my name. There I am in the midst of you. You don't have to have a pope or a priest. You can gather in a small room in a country that hates Christians. And there you can practice the priesthood of every believer. You can break bread. You can praise God. You can share the gospel. You can pray and you can do what God has called you to do. You don't need any of this stuff. God designed that that way so the gospel would penetrate the entire world. Why? Because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God determined that his gospel would be simple and it would be for everyone and it would go throughout the whole world. Now there's another one. Let's talk about prayer. Luther identifies seven functions of priests, proves that all seven apply to all Christians. Prayer, quoting again from this document that I studied, Quote, the sixth function is to pray for others. Says Luther, how horribly and shamelessly these mass, that means priests, have deceived the world and made a sort of fictitious synagogue out of the true church is a grievous story. For Christ gave the Lord's Prayer to all his Christians. Amen? By this alone, we are sufficiently able to prove and confirm that the priesthood is one and the same to all. Whereas the papal priesthood is a falsehood devised outside the church of God and through mere effrontery brought into the church. 
to pray for others is to go between and make intercession of God, which is befitting Christ only and all his brethren. Unquote. Luther on the priesthood of every believer. We can all pray. We don't need a holy man between us and God. There's not somebody who's arrayed in certain garb, who has some secret access that us ordinary people can never hope to have. And so people are hoping to find a holy man. Oh, if you pray for me, I think something might happen. Okay, we'll move the mic around. It seems to me it's just so obviously a continuation of the of, of the Old Testament uh, priests, you know, where they needed an intercessor, where, where God had ordained that, but we're in the New Covenant now, but so much of Catholicism is just... Going back to the Old going Covenant. Going back to the Old Covenant. Yeah. It is. And yeah. see, Christ came to fulfill all of that so that we'd have access to God through him. All of us. Been removed. And if we can go directly to Christ, do you need somebody else? Yeah, I uh, am constantly in a struggle with a couple of my brothers. My family's very conservative Catholic. And this, um, this teaching on the priesthood is wonderful because I think even as, as Christians, um, we think that the priesthood is for the future, for the millennium or whatever. We don't recognize the fact that just living the Christian life is being in the priesthood. Yeah, we're, we're part of the priesthood of every believer. Yeah. Luther makes a good point. Mm-hmm. Who, who has the Lord's Prayer? All of us. And it's not in eternity. It's now. Yeah, it's right now. Now, now yeah. we have the throne of grace. Right. And then one other thing is um, this looking for a man, they they adore the Pope and think he's wonderful, but the one that they pray to is Mary. They're well, totally, Mary. totally Marian. Um, my family as Catholics, they, they pray to Mary. I have been round and round and round with them, and she is their intercessor. Well, she's the one. She's the one they go to to get to Jesus, to get to God. Yeah, okay, Mary's not going to do them any good. I know. <laughs> okay, Mary is a created being. That's Christ, what I try to tell them. And so she's not omniscient. She's not omnipresent. And she couldn't process a billion prayers. Nor could any other human being. But Jesus Christ has the attributes of God, he is omniscient, and he hears all of us. Amen. Well, you know, if they want to be deceived, they will be, but when on the final judgment, I guarantee you, Mary will do them no good. They're going to answer to Christ, not Mary. Mary and Peter aren't letting anybody in. Christ is. But we have the keys now to declare the terms. Let's look up some more verses. Rich, do you want to look up Ephesians 6.18? Peter, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. And Steve, James 5.13. Yes, Rich. Ephesians 6.18. Okay. 
Ephesians 6.18. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Amen. All perseverance and petition, mine says, for all the saints. Who can pray for any and all saints? Whoever was reading Ephesians, meaning all Christians. There's no mediator between man and God, but the man, Christ Jesus. And he sent Paul to tell us that we can pray at all times in the spirit for all the saints. So when we send out prayer requests, we don't send them to some human hierarchy, but to all the saints. Yes. 518. 1 Thessalonians 517. 17. Short one. Okay. Pray without ceasing. There it is. <laughs> Thanks for the shorty. Yeah, I wanted to make sure you could handle it, Peter. <laughs> That's a good memor- memorization verse. James 513. <laughs> is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Amen. So here again, we can pray. Anyone, pray. Anyone, sing praises. You can do both. What a liberating doctrine. Why don't we stick with it? See, whenever you go into this mysticism, you end up with shamans, and the shamans get between you and God to mediate the spirit realm. I've been doing some long email exchanges. If, if I see somebody really hungry for the truth and they want to learn, I'll spend a lot of time on one email exchange because it might turn into an article for a lot of people. I got one lately that was just great like that. Somebody found my article on Jesus Calling. And I rebuked that book as being false teaching, putting false words in the mouth of Jesus, and abusing the flock. No, uh, Sarah Young. Young. But I said, no, this is false. So she read that because everybody was giving her this book. Here, read this book. And she thought, this seems odd. Let me look it up on Google, follow my article. Well, then all the questions come out. Doesn't the spirit tell me things? Well, what sort of things is the spirit telling you beyond scripture? Well, I think he's saying this. or Maybe whatever. I think he's saying this. Well, see, we're not sure what the Spirit's saying once we leave Scripture because we're uncertain. It's the mystical realm. So then I just kept going back to Sola Scriptura, answering every question with Scripture, email after email, more Scripture, more answers. And she's going, oh, this is a totally different worldview. This is totally different. This is revolutionary. Do you know what happens? See, the mystics want to throw you into the realm of the spirits. And I tell people this, and I have been for over 10 years. If you go into the realm of the spirits to find the information, 
thinking somehow it'll be the Holy Spirit, what feeling or impression do you know is for sure the Holy Spirit? Because in 2 Corinthians 11, 4, it talks about another Jesus, another gospel, another Holy Spirit. Which one is right? We don't know. And so what happens inevitably is he end up with a shaman, which is another word for a witch doctor. And the shaman and the witch doctor is proven to be better at this. And then the shaman or witch doctor will tell you. And I said, the Lord loves you and he loves his church and he protects us from the shamans and the witch doctors. Yes. I know we're just about out of time, and uh, this is this is a little bit off base from where you are right now, but talking about ex, uh, you know um, extra biblical uh, revelation, I saw on TV a commercial for this new movie. It's just coming out right now, Ninety Minutes in Heaven. That's oh based yeah, on I one saw the guy books. interviewed. Yeah, and it's put out by those brothers that supposedly make the good movies, and it's got Beth Moore in it and everything else. I just wonder if you could give a warning to people, you know, stay away from those things. Yeah. You know, we've talked about it in the past, but... It... Yeah, we have an article on CICministry.org called Visiting Heaven and Hell. I wrote that in the 90s, and I quoted all kinds of people who claimed to be either to heaven or to hell and come back. And I rejected all of them. Since I wrote that article, there's probably been another 30. In fact, if you want to be popular and sell books, go visit heaven. None of this is reliable. None of it's binding. None of it's authoritative. Paul himself, 2 Corinthians 12, said he saw indescribable things which it is not lawful for man to utter because it'd be beyond scripture and God hadn't ordained that Paul say that or take any stand on it so out of hand I believe none of these and even if somebody had a valid experience I wouldn't believe it it's beyond scripture listen in, in the 70s, I was on the board of this Christian ministry, and I met a lady who was a solid and strong Christian. And she told me an interesting story about herself. Before she was a Christian, she was in a car accident and was pronounced dead, like these stories. And she went and saw this glorious light. Everything was wonderful. Everything was peaceful. Then she wakes up in the hospital back in this body alive. A couple of years later, she heard the gospel, repented, and became a Christian. And, and so she was telling me this, because back then there were some books coming out. She said, I believe that my experience was a deception from Satan to make me think I'd go to heaven without Christ. Because... It was a miracle. If she, if she, already, she had, had the lie in her mind, when you die, you go to a better place. You don't need to be a Christian. When she met Christ, she immediately doubted her experience. And so we go into that realm 
of the spirits. Now, she didn't try to. She was in a car accident. The only thing we know is the gospel and what God has revealed. And so that lady, God bless her, she said, I don't, don't believe any of that. Believe the gospel. Because that experience almost sent her to hell. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we can pray and praise and remember your death for us until you come and perform the functions of a holy priesthood. Thank you for making us able to do so through the blood atonement. And we pray that we help those around us find the truth of the gospel so they may not be deceived. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you in the auditorium at 1030.